I don't care how highbrow some of these scholars are. Some of the greatest men I meet have not been intellectuals by a long way. Our pride gets in our way. We call it intelligence. God calls it pride. Yeah. Self-sufficiency. Arrogance. I've heard people say, you know, if that man would ever give his life to the Lord, he's a lawyer, or he's this, oh, he'd be so marvelous. Are you sure? I'm not. You see, the crumbling of the will is the hardest thing in the whole world. Yeah. Because if I've no will, I, I'm under a dictator, a marvelous dictator, a loving dictator. Yeah. He's never capricious. Wesley says over and over and over in his wonderful, wonderful diaries, I looked at them the other day. John Wesley says, I went to Wednesbury, or I went to Lancashire, or I went to London, or I went to Birmingham. And what did he do? He said, I offered men Christ. We don't offer men Christ. We offer forgiveness. We offer pardon. We offer peace. We offer prosperity now. Forget it. Let's get back to the old rugged cross. Amen. There's no substitute for it. Jesus said, I, If I be lifted up, I will draw men unto him. We're not preaching Christ. Listen to Charles Wesley. Charles put his brother's theology to music. Charles Wesley says this, my heart is full of Christ, not my head is full of theology. My heart is full of Christ and longs this glorious message to declare. You go to a seminary in Dallas or Fort Worth, why? To learn to know your Bible. Forget it. You don't need to know your Bible. You don't need to know the Word of God. You need to know the God of the Word. Elijah didn't know the Word of God. There wasn't one. He knew the God of the Word. And he never moved until God said, Go. God says, go hide thyself. He hid himself for three years, it says. On the third year, it says in the 18th chapter. And then what? God said, go. Go what? Go show yourself to the king. The king's going to kill me. Well, you see. He doesn't care a hill of beans about that. Whitfield would preach and say all he could say under tremendous anointing and then when he could get no further he said he'd lift his hands and just say, Oh! And there was something in his voice that was not of men. It seemed as though the very heart of God was breathing through him. And he would say, Oh! As, Eli as uh, Jeremiah said, that my head were waters. And unashamedly, he was a brilliant scholar, remember. And unashamedly, you will stand there and talk to coal miners at five o'clock in the morning. You don't have an evangelist in the country. I know of the guy at five o'clock in the morning to talk to a crowd. He'll talk in the plush office over TV and, you know, all the trimmings. But where is the confrontation of the men of God? Paul says, I travel in birth. That's a lost art in the church. When were you last in a prayer meeting where somebody travels? I felt this morning after the morning service a woman looked as though she was travailing there in agony in prayer. You want to do it giving out tracts? Men alive, we've given billions of tracts out. They haven't meant a thing. Occasionally, yes. Speaking generally, no. Paul says, I travail in birth. Jesus says, he sees of the travail of his soul. God says that when, when, when Israel... Of all, when she travelled, when Zion travelled, she brought forth children. I think it's Montgomery that it says in a hymn, all earthly things with earth will fade away, but prayer grasps eternity. 
It doesn't demand a colossal intellect. It doesn't uh, demand a vast vocabulary. Montgomery again says, O thou by whom we come to God, the life, the truth, the way, the path of prayer thyself hath trod, Lord, teach us how to pray. And then he says, prayer is the simplest form of speech that infant lips can try. Prayer, the sublimest strains that reach the majesty on high. Answer this question, not to me, but answer it to yourself. Did you kneel and pray this morning? Did you believe that when you prayed this morning, the God who heard Elijah on Mount Carmel heard your prayer? Do you believe when you prayed about same eternal being there? Or heard the prayers of his son, here's your prayer? And I've heard in, in a forum in England some of the greatest preachers that have preached in the last half century. And some of them were very dazzling, very fascinating. They were masters. They had elastic vocabularies. They could stretch their words. They could paint pictures. They could make something run up and down your spine. They could chill you. They could give you a fever. Because they knew how to put words together. But I've met very few men that disturbed me when they prayed. Nobody wanted to pray after Dr. Tozer. He had a language. He had a... He had, shall we say, a disposition in prayer. This, in my judgment, is why Jesus says, You stay here while I go pray young. They would never have understood his grief, his anxiety, his sweat. He sweat as it were great drops of blood. They didn't understand this. They were used to saying their little paternosters, their little prayers, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But beyond this, they didn't know much about intercession at all. Philip says this is the church where they did not sign articles of faith, they acted in faith. This is the church where they did not gather together a group of intellectuals to study psychosomatic medicine, they just heal the sick. This is the church, he said, where they did not say prayers. But they prayed in the Holy Ghost. And I've heard the greatest preacher in the world in the last 50 years. And yet the outstanding experiences of my life are not in hearing these amazing men who can do a juggling. I can almost blind you with, the, with, with their theological science. The greatest me memories I have are of praying with men who are anointed by the Spirit of God. And we prayed until two or three or later hours in the morning. Do you think you can find a church on earth that fits into that pattern? Huh? Does your church rule in that liberty? Not in bondage to headquarters? Not studying psychosomatic medicine, but having power? So I had one of the great theologians of the, of the Pentecostal church in my office recently. I said, I want to read this. Listen to what Bartleman says. There are 70 million classical Pentecostals. He said, that's not true. I said, well, I'm sorry, I misquoted it. He said, not 70 million, 120 million. I moved across, almost put my finger in his eye. I said, were there 120 million in the upper room? No. 
Well, I said, what's the difference between their baptism and ours? Come on, be honest. We're boasting without something we don't have. It's a theology, it's a phrase, it's a technique. I want an invasion of God. I want a God to settle over a community. It only comes by birth pangs. Somebody may have mentioned that great revival through Jonathan Edwards, what in the 1700s, when he prayed that sermon that is still read, sinners in the hands of an angry God. But listen, he spent the whole night before that with a group of choice people praying and fasting and weeping. Do you know in those revivals never once was there an altar call? Do you know that all the years that Spurgeon was in London, he never once made an altar call? Do you know when, the re when there's a revival, you don't make an altar call? Read the first chapter, third chapter of Luke. And what does it say? It tells you about John the Baptist. What a man. His mother was filled with the Holy Ghost. His father was filled with the Holy Ghost. The priest of the day was filled with the Holy Ghost. He was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. It doesn't say that about Jesus. Jesus was the Son of God, but he didn't preach until the Spirit rested upon him. And he says, go into all the world, but don't go until you tarry with to be endured with power. Listen, there isn't a Pentecostal church in America today. I've said that in front of Pentecostal audiences. You talk about restoration. Are you going to see people restored to be deacons like Acts 6, full of faith and of the Holy Ghost with signs and wonders? And Those are deacons. Are you going to have revivalists like Philip in the 8th chapter? He's not an ordained minister, we would say. And then he goes into a city and the whole city's moved in the power of the Spirit of God. It's the fire that makes the difference. I'll tell you, once you get a meeting with Holy Ghost, you'll never forget it. Something burns. Sure, I'm getting old, I get tired. But I want to tell you, I've got a fire in my belly, if you'll excuse the word, and if you won't, I'll tell you, it's still there. And it gets more fierce every day, Brother Rick. It doesn't go down. I jump out of bed, at, if I've gone to bed early, at nine, I get up at eleven or twelve. If I go at ten, I sleep maybe till two. Many times I think the bed's on fire. I get up and run to my office at the other end of the room. And you know what? I want it that way. I love the fire of God, the word of God to burn in me until I can't do anything but say, Oh God, don't let this generation pass without seeing your glory. We've had the gold gluttons. We've had these men who want their private jets and live ostentatiously. Forget it. There isn't a revivalist in America today, not one. When revival comes, the total environment is changed. You don't have to lash people for money. A prophet never asks for money. Prophets are lonely men. Prophets are daring men. Every piece of paper that comes to my desk these days, and I get it from the ends of the earth, everybody gets your name somehow, and they all send me literature on revival and how to get it, and not one of them's within a million miles as far as I'm going to... And you know what they all call... It was right across the middle of Decision Magazine on the 4th of, uh, 4th of July, remember that? Right across in that fabulous, beautiful painting that was there. It is across the footnote of a bunch of preachers from Billy Graham to Who's Who that are going to meet uh, in about three weeks and pray down in Dallas. Everything has one mark on it, 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name... I don't believe that's a secret for revival today. That pushes all the responsibility on the pew. The responsibility for revival in my judgment is this, and I'll never move from it. 
Because, you see, 2 Chronicles 7.14 has nothing to do with the preachers. It has no time tag on it. But when you come to Joel 1.13, Joel 2.13, Joel 3.13, and what do you get? No mention of the pew. It's all on the pulpit. Let the priests read between the altar and the doorposts. Let them rend their hearts. Let them cry out. Let them howl. But where in God's name do you get taught to howl in prayer? Where do we get to, 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 to weep like this? This woman is weeping. Or weep like the apostle Paul. He says in uh, Romans chapter 9 and verse what, verse 2, I could wish myself a curse. Do you know, literally he says, I, I could be damned if need be for my brethren. I ask that of every batch of students we get at our prayer meeting. They change every few weeks. Because of the Bible schools round about us. We get about 100, 150 students on a Friday night. It's a fantastic meeting to me. They drive three, four, five, six hours to get to the prayer meeting. They leave at 10 o'clock at night, and if they're from ORU, they get back at 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning. Isn't that wonderful? Sure. But it's also tragic. Why do they have to drive three, four, five hours to find a prayer meeting? The prayer meeting is the Cinderella of the church. If you want to know how popular a church is, go Sunday morning. If you want to know how popular a preacher is, go Sunday night. If you want to know how popular God is, go to the prayer meeting. Who wins? If you want to take your spiritual temperature, and you should do that more regularly than you, you check your blood, check your prayer life. Prayer is the language of the poor. Doesn't matter if you're a king. It was a king who said, Bow down thine ear and hear me, for I am poor and needy. It was a king who said, This poor man cried. The self sufficient do not want to pray. The self satisfied don't want to pray. The self-righteous cannot pray. Prayer is the most demanding exercise this side of eternity. You know the nitty-gritty of the whole thing is this, we don't know God. We don't know God. We know theology, we know about Him. Why did Jesus come into the world to save sinners? That's not what Jesus said. What did Jesus say? I'm come that they may know thee. Every man that comes in my office, and I get them worldwide, I don't know why, but they come. And I say, first tell me, do you know God? Well, I have a degree. I didn't ask you about that. Do you know God? When was your last encounter with God? When were you last prostrate in his presence? When did you last sit spellbound at his majesty? You don't know God. Because we don't know God, we don't know how to worship. We don't know how to enter into his presence. We're content to know a few theological shibboleths that other people have taught us. Dear God, one of the leading men in the Southern Baptist Church, a very dear friend of yours, I won't give you a clue after that, my dear brother, he said to me recently, he said, listen, forget our seminaries. There's no anointing in them. Those professors are teaching the le lessons on Romans they taught 10 years ago. You can shake the dust off them. How can men sit and hear the word of the living God and not catch fire? Do you know what you do when you go to seminary? You get a swollen head and a shrunken heart. 
when the racist Angela said I heard in my life was W.P. Nicholson I'd like to spend a whole night one night telling a story about him very very fantastic preacher he said I would just as soon give my son a file of poison as send him to the modern seminary The tragedy in our colleges and seminaries right now, we turn men out because they know the Word of God. That's never going to move the world. The question is not whether they know the Word of God, the question is do they know the God of the Word? And just to give a man a, a, a license to preach because he has some academic ability and then he can train the little thing on the wall, you know, to say he got his degree because his grandmother put him through uh, college, you know, and he likes to show this thing off. To do that is like giving a blind man a driving license. If he doesn't know God, why is he in this business? I come to this conclusion recently about two things. We've got to make up our minds that this book is absolute or absolute. It's either got the answer for our generation or forget it. And the other thing is that preaching is not a profession, it's a truth. Why do you weep, sir? Because you don't weep. I say, if your preacher doesn't weep, you weep over the preacher. So I say, if your religion hasn't changed, you change your religion. Weeping is an integral part of revival. Doesn't it say that in Joel 2, 2 what's the verse? 17, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep, weep between the altar and the doorpost. Let them say, spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thy heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Do you know anybody wants to do that? We have conferences, we call people to repentance. You can't, you can call them to listen, only God can call them to repentance. We should live in a constant state of repentance. Why should I repent every night when I go to bed if I've done nothing wrong all day? I think what we have to do is not live in a state of repentance, it's live in a state of brokenness. How can we be whole when the world is damned and rotting before our eyes? Let the priest weep between the altar and the doorpost. And as I said, I walked round the front of that podium that day in that distinguished, wonderful college. 1,400 students listening. I just walked round and said to the professors, Gentlemen, you're teaching young men to be preachers. They're, they're, they're going to guide the church in, in one sense in the future days. Tell me this, do you have a course on weeping for them? And if they graduate, do you have a course on howling? In the days of Oliver Cromwell was Dr. John Owen that wrote all these fabulous books. He has about six volumes on the Holy Spirit. One day the king called him and he said, Come and speak. I want to speak with you. You are the vice chancellor of Oxford University. You are the greatest preacher in England today. I hear that thou dost go listening to that babbling Baptist. He said, Your Majesty, I walked four miles the other day. And I listened to that Baptist. He's a tinker. He's a poor man. But he said, sir, I will take off my robes of office. I would gladly resign as supreme preacher for Oxford University if I could preach like John Bunyan. You see, there's something the money can't buy. You can't bestow it. You can't pass it on. It originates in God. It has to be born in me. And may, may die. Dear God, you'd be amazed how many young men right and ask me, would you like to pass your mantle on to me? 
So I write back, no, I'll send you some nice sackcloth, I'll never hear from them again. Oh, you're the new Apostle Paul and I want to be a Timothy, forget it. If we took everybody, we get about 30 visitors a week to our house. Some guy, the Lord has shown me to come and stay at your house a year. Good for you. He hasn't shown me, so you're not coming. We're all looking after a short way to get blessing, aren't we? We're looking for a formula. There isn't one. There's no formula. It's a person. I hate it to hear Swaggart, Paul Swaggart saying, the baptism. Have you had it? The baptism isn't it. It's a person. It's a blessed third person of the Trinity. And when he comes and invades human personality, everything goes. A man becomes God-controlled. He thinks like Christ. He sees like Christ. He loves like Christ. Somebody asked Hudson Taylor, why did God choose you to go to China and, and, and establish the China Inland Mission? He said because he'd been looking for years for somebody weak enough to use. And at last he found me. They were unlearned and ignorant men. The Holy Ghost came upon them. Where did he go the first time? Did he knock on the door of the Sanhedrin and say, Hey, have you somebody likely prospect? I want a man with a sharp intellect. Did he go to the high priest and say, Well, who do you think is a finest young priest you've got around? He ignored the whole bunch. He went to some smelly fisherman and said, Come on, follow me. And on my servants and handmaids, not intellectuals and bishops and presidents of colleges. God's going to bypass organized religion and systems before very long. I believe that many denominations are breathing their last right now. They're struggling to try and plug the hole up and stick the hole up here and stop something else. And the world says, but you've got nothing real and vital and living and powerful. The church of holiness today, we have no life. We've got the letter, but no life. We've got the word, but no spirit. We've got the terms, but no production. I said last night every miracle. The word of the living God, what have men done? Banned it, flamed it, burned it, but it lives. It will live when empires fall. It will be there at the end of all time. It's the word of God that lives. And it abides. It's as short as the throne. It has any light of God. It has behind it every beat of the heart of the Son of God, every drop of his blood, every tear from his eye, every yearning of his soul. It's God's word. And heaven and earth will pass away. And brother and I put on the mantle of a prophet in your life for a moment and tell him they said communism will pass away. The God's word will never pass away. It is indestructible of God, it is God. It is God. Cornell University some years ago by putting a frog in a dishpan of, of boiling water and he jumped out 
and then they put a frog in a, a, a dishpan of cold water and they turn the jet at the bottom and then they, they turn it up one degree, two degrees and you know what that frog did? He stayed in there till they cooked him to death. When they put him in the boiling water, he got out because he said, I can't live here. But when they, by degrees, they, they, they changed the thing and he adjusted and he adjusted and he adjusted and, and they still killed him anyhow. And you know, we've got some things in our churches, if not in our lives, that a few years ago we never would have had. And old Satan didn't pour the boiling water on, he put this little thing and then that little thing and that little thing. And before very long the churches become so carnal. The glory of the Lord doesn't fill the temple. When did you last tiptoe out of your particular tabernacle saying, Surely God is in this place? I say again with all the power of my being, I do not believe that modern Christians go to church to meet God. They go to church to hear a sermon about God. They don't expect deity to invade the place. They don't expect to tiptoe out of the holy place saying, God is the here and that to bless us. The Spirit moved over my heart. A boy said to me a sweet thing this morning. He's only a young fellow, 17 or 18, I guess. And he said, Brother Ravenel, it's been so good to be here this week. You know, during the preaching, and a number of preached besides me, but he said, during the preach, the Lord has been pushing back my horizons. Well, God bless him. I'm glad for fellows that have got bigger horizons. You know, David prayed, enlarge my heart. Some of us are praying, enlarge my head. But uh, David didn't pray, enlarge my head. He says, enlarge my heart. And if he enlarges my heart, he'll enlarge my vision, he'll enlarge my compassion, he'll enlarge my concern. Now I say this right now, I'm convinced of this. But it's going to be a hard thing to get it, and I'm preaching to my own heart as well as you. I'm saying this afternoon that I believe that the answer is not merely good theology and preaching sound doctrine. The answer is not preaching merely for this generation. We need prophets. And God found Amos, a man gathering sycamore fruit. And he found Obadiah. And he found joy when a lion was having waves after waves of altars. They were eating everything out and there was darkness. And he found Habakkuk. And Habakkuk said it's a picture of absolute complete death. The fig tree shall not blossom. Thou shall not be fruit in the vine. The labor of the olive shall fail. The fields shall yield no wheat. And the herd shall be cut off from the stalls. In other words, it was in the darkest and most desolate hour that God raised up his prophet. Why? Because out of them there was flowing a river of living water. I think he's the only prophet in the Old Testament who from the moment he took office to the moment he died had continuous warfare with the people.
The prophet diagnoses, he doesn't put any band-aids on. He does spiritual surgery. He lets people know exactly what he's saying and what God... You see, what prophets do, they live with God till they see like God, they love like God, they hate like God. They have a holy anger. I've touched thy mouth and the Lord said, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. Dear Lord. I wonder how many preachers could stand up tonight and say this morning when I preached to the crowd, I didn't preach a thought of my own, I didn't preach a word. God put those words in my mouth. They're not my words, they're not my theology, they're not my doctrine. I try to live as near to the heart of God as I can. I know when he speaks. I know when he breaks my heart. I know when he gives me anger, which I need. This man is no professional preacher. Preaching is not a profession, it's a passion. A man can't preach with passion, he shouldn't preach at all. Not a profession. A passion. There's no breath of professionalism anywhere in the ministry of Paul, and thank God there's no breath of commercialism either. Peter said in his day that some will make merchandise of you. That couldn't be more true than the day in which we're living. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I bear here at the back of my neck a brand which tells you that this part of my being, my thinking, my philosophy is that of Jesus Christ, my teaching, my feet. Isn't it staggering how, how, how far this amazing man went? Look at his missionary journeys without airplanes, without trains. God put something in him. The stupid world tried to get it out of him. But God put something, something in him and, and they lashed him 195 times and they couldn't whip it out of him. And he hung on a piece of wood in the Mediterranean for 36 hours and they couldn't wash it out of him. And they tried to threaten it out of him. But Almighty God put something in there, you see. They were not trying to kill the Apostle Paul, the idiots. They were trying to kill Jesus Christ. Because Christ lived in him. And he says, I don't know whether to desire and depart or be here because it's not much better off up there in one sense. You know, that's a tragedy with millions of people. They go through life blind, blind to God, blind to God's righteousness, blind to his justice, blind to his holiness, blind to his commandments. And in a moment of time, they wake up in hell. What's the condition of America like spiritually tonight? Zero. Why? Because we've got blind men coming out of seminaries. The men there don't teach them. They don't hear a word about hell. They're blind themselves and they, as blind men they lead the blind and they go to hell. And you say, I prayed for the Holy Spirit. Why doesn't he come? Because you stink. You stink with pride. You stink with indifference. You stink with laziness. You stink with bitterness. And the Holy Ghost doesn't come.
how concerned are we? How much praying, how much fasting, how much weeping do we do? It says he looked over the city and Jesus wept. And when Paul looked around and saw the infiltration in his day of wrong teaching, he says, I tell you, even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. There were never more enemies of the cross of Christ than today. The enemies of the cross of Christ are not in the tavern now. They're in God's house. They're in some archaeological seminaries trying to water down the word of God. Jerusalem. You kill the prophets, you kill God's anointed men, your house is empty. And you're empty, he says. That's what he says. In essence, you're empty in an empty house. You can disagree if you like. I don't mind that. I believe God will look down on every church in America or England this Sunday and say, your house is empty. Where is the living, vibrant power that like that precious meeting last night when the woman suddenly realized God had a grip on her heart and she stood up in front of a congregation and screamed for mercy and the meeting broke we want to organize it oh wait till the end we'll sing just as I am you know and you can come sweetly I don't ask anybody to come to altar with their eyes closed Jesus didn't say will you please close your eyes while I go to Calvary he met a spitting scornful crowd there's one thing that God requires of us and there's one thing that's demanded of us, obviously, as preachers, if we're going to really preach, is that we can say what I think is the most unique thing to say this side of eternity. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach. And I don't see how a man can be brought into the heart of God and have the anointing of God without tears, without brokenness. We live in a broken world. Marriages are broken, children are broken, minds are broken with drugs, bodies are broken with disease, bodies are broken with alcohol. We live in a broken world and there's nobody can heal it but God. And his agency is the church of the living God and yet where are the servants? I don't see how a man can live and not weep, I couldn't anyhow. He sees the tragedy, he sees the brokenness, he sees the victory of the devil. He says, men and women taken captive at his will. But you know, once a man gets into that anointing, once he gets into the place where the Spirit of God has come and touched him, and he's not thinking like other men think, he's not acting like other men, his values are all changed. I don't know how you pray, I'm very simple, I pray simply. One of my regular prayers, in the closet or with my prayer class on a Friday night. Again and again I thank God for the incorruptible Holy Ghost. Doesn't matter if your checkbook is that length, you can't buy a super baptism of the Holy Ghost with a billion dollars. All he asked for is brokenness and contrition and emptiness and a recognition of my bankruptcy, a recognition the world is going to hell. 
The government can't help America. If you're depending on the White House, forget all about it. It's God's house that's going to save America, not the White House. It's not presidents, it's prophets. It's not men full of wisdom, it's men full of the Holy Ghost. What happens? All the meetings over. Off they go. They have to get through the door. They're smoking or they rush off to do something. In revival, people do not leave the sanctuary for hours. This precious 26-year-old young man finished preaching. Walked out of the building at 10 o'clock, got down on his face and prayed all night and all the next day for the next meeting the next night. Our guys are guzzling some junk or running home for TV. There's no brooding of the Holy Ghost. But when the Holy Ghost takes in an area, watch it. You can't explain it, you can't predict it, you can't direct it. God becomes sovereign. And I'm aching, aching, aching in my spirit to see a sovereign move of God, the Holy Ghost. Oh, do you think God may be as grieved with the church today that we spend so little time in prayer? I'm convinced we've come into a form today of Christian humanism. That's all it is. We'll do it, you bless it, Lord. You've got to bless our TV program, you've got to bless our tracks we give out, or our records or something. Who says he has? We want to do in the energy of the flesh, we sanctify the flesh to a great degree. We, we put personalities up just like the world does. something the other day that's very disturbing. I said, Doctor, what was it? He said, this good Baptist preacher said this to an audience that he was addressing. He said, I want to tell you that if God withdrew the Holy Spirit from my church today, it would function tomorrow the same way we wouldn't even know he'd gone. And methinks that might be written of many churches in that we become so mechanical we go in at 11 and come out at 12 and the Holy Ghost must come when we open the door of the church and he must leave when we lock it and we try and lay down the track and say come Holy Ghost for thee we call spirit of burning come but come our way we've laid down the conditions Holy Ghost come but please don't violate our theology don't upset our status quo don't break our hearts over the lost world I said, what about the Welsh Revival? He said, I'll tell you what happened in the Welsh Revival. He said, I was with William Booth in his office. We were having meetings uh, in London. And somebody sent me a note, my wife. Revival has broken out. There's a young man in his 20s, Evan Roberts. And he's packing everywhere he goes. He won't even let them publicize him. He won't let them put his picture in the paper. They'll just announce he's coming to Swansea. And every church in town is filled because they don't know where he's going. 
So he said, well, I knew I, uh, Friday afternoon I had, I could leave uh, Friday afternoon and that's Saturday free and I could come back Sunday and get to the office from Monday morning. So I said, I went there, the meeting was crowded. In one meeting, Evan Roberts comes in, there's 800 people, which isn't big for America, but there it's the largest hall in town. And Evan walks down to the front seat, sits down, bows his head, and prayed for three hours. Our people walk out. But then he stood up for 15 minutes, he said, you ever heard not like it in your life? The Holy Ghost came upon him, and he was a big man. When he prayed, God just came down as though he jumped in the audience. And that happened more than once. And he said, at the end of the meeting, he said, uh, you course you end it. the meeting was no, 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 no. He just, after he'd uh, prayed for three hours and spoke for 50 minutes, he went out. At 10 o'clock at night, he prayed the whole night for the anointing for the next day. Our guys don't do that. They go sit and talk and say silly jokes. We want to be spiritual and carnal, spiritual, carnal, hot and cold, all out for God, all out for the cowboys. God says no. And you've done it for 25 years, why not quit and start something different? Last Sunday night he preached in one of the, maybe the largest church in Denver, Colorado. <coughs> he said, Len, as we sat there, it was ready, I, I was ready to preach and suddenly I was overcome with grief. And I just walked forward and sat on the floor, didn't go to the pulpit. And I began to weep. God just gave me such a burden. And he said, look, there's a congregation of about 3,000. He said, there's a girl in here who has been molested by a man, sexually molested. And the man is going to go to jail. And as he said it, the girl about 16 ran down the aisle and she said, Mr. Wilkerson, I'm the girl that has been molested. My daddy did it and he has to go to jail. David just groaned. He said there must have been 15 or 16 other young women came there and said, my father or brother or somebody is, is assaulting me sexually every week. And he said, my spirit just groaned and he stayed there 50 minutes weeping. I said, Dave, bless you. The average preacher would have said, uh, I just had a kind of a little upset in my spirit. Uh, I feel there's somebody in trouble. Uh, I'd like a few of you to pray. Raise your hands. We're going to pray for this girl. She's in trouble. I know she is. Instead of that, he swept all his theology, his sermon on one side, and obeyed the Holy Ghost. The whole church broke up in weeping and brokenness, seeking God. Same thing happened without ever, ha ever having to open his mouth preaching. I'm sure that's the kind of spirit that the apostle had. Because the spirit of Christ indwelling him. It's the Spirit of God dwelling in him. They experimented at Cornell University some years ago by putting a frog in a dishpan of, of boiling water and he jumped out. And then they put a frog in a, a, a dishpan of cold water and they turned the jet at the bottom and then they, they turned it up one degree, two degrees and you know what that frog did? He stayed in there till they cooked him to death. When they put him in the boiling water, he got out because he said, I can't live here. But when they, by degrees, they, they, they changed the thing and he adjusted and he adjusted and he adjusted and, and they still killed him anyhow. 
And you know, we've got some things in our churches, if not in our lives, that a few years ago we never would have had. And old Satan didn't pour the boiling water on. He put this little thing, and then that little thing, and that little thing. And before very long, the church has become so carnal. The glory of the Lord doesn't fill the temple. When did you last tiptoe out of your particular tabernacle saying, Surely God is in this place? I say again, with all the power of my being, I do not believe that modern Christians go to church to meet God. They go to church to hear a sermon about God. They don't expect deity to invade the place. They don't expect to tiptoe out of the holy place saying, God is the here and that to bless us. The Spirit moved over my heart. tell some people that God Almighty may send communism to America to purge it of its uncleanness and its sin and its lethargy and its unbelief and the selfishness amongst believers, they're what you ordered shipped out of the country. But I want to tell you, God loved Israel, but he let her go into bondage for 400 years. And then when she came out, he let her go into bondage another 400 years. And now they're in bondage, not to the Philistines. And after all, dear friend, when you read the Old Testament, Almighty God's problem in the Old Testament was not the Amalekites or the Hittites or the Perizzites or the Jebusites. God only had one problem in the Old Testament and that was Israel. And I believe Almighty God only has one problem in the world tonight. It's not communism or Romanism, it's the Church of the Living God. And he is concerned about her with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. And if Jesus weeps, he weeps tonight because of the paralysis of the Church. The glory has departed. We go through the mechanics. I'd like to see 300 pastors come together for a whole week and stay prostrate before God. Wouldn't you like to see that, Brother Ray? No fancy lecturing, just getting there in prostration, heart searching and saying, God, if we can do it, if we can birth revival, if we can give our bodies, our spirits, our minds to total control by you, if we stay here, it doesn't matter whether we die here. See, this class of prayer is hardly known. saying, God, God, you don't manifest yourself anymore. We don't challenge you to divide the Red Sea. We don't dare to call fire down from heaven. We can sow and plow and do everything. We don't ask you to feed us with heavenly manner. Our people don't feed on God, they feed on meetings. They go from one seminary to another sem a seminar to another seminar. this morning that suddenly God will come. You'll jump up from your seat with an arrow of God in your heart and flee here for refuge. The Lord whom ye seek, and I'm seeking God. I'm not seeking miracles, as good as they are, or prophecy, I'm seeking God. You say America needs God. No, she doesn't. She need, the church needs God. If the church gets God, America will soon feel it. She'll be staggering.
I just finished a two-week meeting in, in Dr. Fuller's church in Grand Rapids, and I preached radical holiness in nothing Baptist church with 1,200 people in. The thing I like when we came into the sanctuary, a lovely auditorium, Dr. Fuller walked us to the front and raised his hand. The whole audience was quiet. And Fuller said each meeting, God is in his holy temple, Lord, let all the earth be silent before him. You see, I, 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 I can go to the sanctuary of God, but I don't have to wait for God to come really. In order to I go in and say, God's never late. The sun never gets out of bed, as Dr. Anderson said this morning, one second late. It never goes to bed one second late. It works perfectly. When I come to the house of God, the presence of God, should already be there. Yeah. We've lost much. Yes, you may nod your heads and nudge each other and disagree, you pastors, but if I were talking to you individually, you'd say with me, you know, we're not producing a very deep form of piety in the day. No, sir, we're not. But I've been in a little church, and it's a Pentecostal church on the hills of Wales. Service starts half past ten in Sunday morning. I get there quarter past ten. A little old miner comes in, but he sits down, bends his head reverently, and begins to sing quietly. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord, and sings it maybe twenty times. And then somebody else comes up, and they join in it, and maybe they sing it another twenty times. And somebody else comes up, and they sing with him. Before long, that atmosphere. It got filled with worshipping men and women. They never start worshipping with a hymn at this time. The whole service moves in a spirit of worship and reverence and adoration. And I've been in churches in many parts of the world and some of the biggest churches. But I tell you this, that I have never yet, when I'm not Pentecost and I don't speak with terms, I've stood for and suffered in some way for old-fashioned holiness and always will. Well, my dear friend, I want to tell you that when I want to know how they worship God, I slip in that little church of miners and unlettered men and women, and my soul goes wide up to heaven. You know how to worship. Our churches are irreverent. I've been in two or three churches and folks have said at the end, you know, I don't know. You see, Junior gets up and runs to the bathroom, but he wouldn't get up and run to the bathroom if Mr. Eisenhower was giving a speech. Is my Lord worthy of reverence? Somebody comes in and gives a bit of gossip and yum, 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 yums away in somebody's ear while the fellow preaches. Did he do that if I now was here? Come on, be honest! No, and he said, I haven't been in a church in England where they know how to worship God. Well, I said, this is very interesting, Brother Singh, would you... Well, I said, tell me this, if I came to your church Sunday morning, uh, what's the procedure in the service? And without batting an eye, he just looked up very pleasantly and he said, Brother Ravenel, the first three hours of our service Sunday, you get that? 
The first three hours is given to praise, worship, adoration, thanksgiving, ecstasy. <clears throat> and then what? All the second three hours we give to prayer, intercession, supplication. And then what? The third three hours we have breaking of bread. One man has a hymn, another has a song. A woman gets up and says she's just finished 20 days of fasting. A man here says God dealt with him here. A man says the spirit awakened him and told him to go put something right, something it's stolen years. We, we give the whole meeting over to the saints for each of them to make their contribution. Well, I said, Brother Singh, that's nine hours. Do you, do you, do you have a service nine hours every Lord's Day? And he said, no. Oh, well, I said, I wasn't thinking about conventions or camp meetings. I was thinking of the... The normal Sunday. Well, he said, I'm talking about the normal Sunday, except that the meeting doesn't last nine hours always. It lasts, uh, sometimes the glory comes down, where they're 11 hours, 12 hours, 13 hours, 14 hours. We don't know a thing about that, do we? I can remember Dr. Toes, I can hear him now saying, Len, uh, I think I'll have gone from this scene, but maybe before you die, you'll see people coming from foreign countries to show us what New Testament Christianity is all about. As I said last night, the great need of this hour, as our brother sang this morning, all oh, ye that are hungry and thirsty, the need of the hour is water. We're in a dry and thirsty land. There's not a spot of revival in America today. There's not a spot of revival in England today. The only country in the world that has any semblance of revival are not civilized countries, they're uncivilized countries. God is bypassing us, provoking us. Like Jonah, they didn't want to go there. I don't want to go to the people of the river. Come and revive thy work. God says, go. I'll start up this nation of mine by doing revival there, and I'll bypass Israel. And God will send revival. Don't you make any mistake about that. But he can't get away from sending him in America. He'll find a way. But God loves my generation as much as he ever loved any generation. Grace is still flowing like a river, and millions there have been supplied. Jesus emphasizes here, I'm the water of life. What is a man to have a mountain for? He won't fly. What do people flock to Florida for? Or on the other hand, go away to the Pacific coast. To Hollywood or somewhere else, they're seeking life. And Jesus says, I'll satisfy man out of his belly. It's there that we crave. You remember the apostle said, some of you, your God is your belly. And we live in a generation of belly worshippers. We never had more food and we never had more hunger. The craving that's in a man. Jesus said, I'll give him a very speech of his craving and satisfy him. And not only satisfy him. And only satisfy him, I'll be a well in him that goes out to the uttermost parts of the earth is easy. I am the water life. Everywhere Jesus emphasized that he was life. That's why, my dear friend, we need to ask the church if, if the spirit, as I said last night, is brooding over your assembly. If he is, then it will be instinct in life. God is life as well as life. And life begets life. And life is power. And life is reproductive. 
And the curse of holiness today, and I won't pull that word back either for any of you. The curse of holiness today is we have no life. We've got the letter but no life. We've got the word but no spirit. We've got the terms but no production. 